relationships. Our lives revolve around them. Family, friends, work or romance. They are complex and messy. And don't always work out as we want. God has made us for each other and maybe he can show us a better way to be together. This is not your average relationship series. Now here's the thing about relationships. I just kind of want to set the premise on that. The Christian faith at its core is a relational faith. Its epicenter is all about relationships. And if we could stand Jesus up here on this stage right now and say, Jesus, can you boil down all 66 books of the Bible for us in a simple statement? We need Christianity for dummies. Give it to us straight. And he would answer the, this question the same way he answered it 2,000 years ago. He said all of it, everything written, all the law and all the prophets, it all boils down to two simple commands. Love God and love others, period. Now, the Christian faith at its core is a relational faith. Now, if Christian discipleship is working well, you should be able to peer into any Christian community and see, hey, they really do excel at, um, in the area of relationships, right? That's always true of any Christian gathering, man. They're just relating so well. Mm, I don't know. I think there are some values and mindsets in our culture that undermine and affect how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see and treat other people. You see, we are children of the modern era. The modern era has brought many great things into our lives. It's brought advances in technology that we love, and the sciences, the industrial revolution, democratic freedoms, individual human rights are all part of the modern era, what has the modern era has brought to us, all good things. But the modern era has also produced the most autonomous, individualistic, disconnected generation of people in history. So tonight, if you haven't guessed already, we're going to be talking about the generations. The, oops, back. We'll go back one. The generations. So let's start by taking a quick look at some of these generations and their coming of age. I came across a great book um, by um, Dr. Tim Elmore called Generation IY. Now, I've taken the following information from his book, so don't blame me. He says that in each generation, there are distinct characteristics and life paradigms that define each generation. And researchers would agree that there are five, soon to be six, generations currently living today. Six because people are living longer. So this generation has been called, and deservedly so, it's been called the greatest generation. They were born between the years of 1929 and 1945, and they are called the gener greatest generation because these are the men and women who went selflessly to war, World War II, not because they had to and not for fame or recognition, but because it was the right thing to do. And I have to mention New Zealand here. New Zealand's population um, was just over a million and a half. I think it was 1,600,000 at this time. And listen to this, this statistic with that in mind. At the end of World War II, 194,000 New Zealand men and 10,000 women had served in the armed forces at home and overseas. And get this, 
One in every 150 New Zealanders lost their lives serving their country. That's incredible. They are the greatest, one of the greatest generations. Their life paradigm was, be grateful you have a job. They grew up in really hard times, the Great Depression, like I said, World War II. They're often frugal, conservative, thrifty, and they save the wrapping paper. That describes my mother-in-law to a T. Her father, my husband's grandfather, died in World War II. And I'm sure many of your family have as well. Now, the next slide is the baby boomers. Baby boomers. Now, they were born between 1946 and 1964. So Michaela and I, we are on the very tail end of this. So we could actually be called Gen Xers as well. But these are the baby boomers. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why they're called boomers is because nine months after World War II was over, the maternity ward spilled out. 76 million babies were born at this time. The men were happy to be home. <laughs> so boomers were large and in charge, and they felt entitled to a better life, a better standard of living than their parents had. Now, their life paradigm was, according to the book, is you owe me. And if we think we see entitlement in kids today, there was a dose of it 50 years ago. Now, the next generation was Gen X. Now, they were born in 1965 and came of age, I mean, from 1965 to 1982. Now, at this time, especially in the 60s, the world was broken. And in the early 70s, they grew up during Vietnam. And my dad was in Vietnam. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. I remember being in high school. And in the 80s, and feeling like the world was coming to an end when there, were, when there was an assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II, um, who was shot and critically wounded. And I went to Catholic school, man, and everything just shut down. And we just went into a full-on prayer vigil. Like, and that was just like an incredible thing. And I remember being really scared, like feeling like, what is happening in the world? Interestingly, before they were given the names Gen X, they were also known as the Baby Busters. Because in the States, it was the introduction of the birth control pill and the case and the court case Roe versus Wade, which gave the right for women to have an abortion. So there was a decrease in the amount of babies being born. And because it was a dark time in history, their life paradigm was relate to me. They wanted authentic relationships. And then we have the next generation is millennials, millennials, or Gen Y. And they were born between 1983 and 2000. Now, I crack, this cracks me up. Their life paradigm is life is a cafeteria. <laughs> it's so funny. A caf you know, like in a cafeteria, you go down the line with your tray, and you can pick and choose and make up your own meal tailored to your taste. This generation are making major decisions in their life like it was one big buffet. Picking and choosing. For instance, they don't buy CDs anymore. They might only like one song on your CD, so they buy one song at a time and create their own playlist from Spotify or iTunes. They can go to three or four different unis just to get one degree. They, and we aren't guiding them anymore, and this was on the news the other night, we aren't guiding them anymore as to what the economy might need. They are following their passions. And I'll talk more about millennials in a minute. And then we have this fifth generation here, called Gen Z, and they were born in 2001 to 2018. These 21st century kids are born with screens in their hand. There are toddlers more tech savvy than I am. 
Their other name is screenagers, not teenagers, but screenagers because they are literally growing up in front of the screen. But think about it. For all the advanced technology, think about what's happened in our world over the last 15 years and what these screenagers have grown up with. 9-11 happened. Um, there have been 25,000, I mean 26,000 terrorist attacks, and this was a 2015 statistic. It's a lot more than that now. A recession in the economy, unemployment, racial unrest. And their tagline, according to Dr. Elmore, is this, and he sees it a lot. He says, I'm coping and hoping. I'm hanging in there, hacking my way through this. They are an overwhelmed generation. We are living in IY generation, and the little I stands for internet, iPads, iPhones. And for the first time in history, thanks to Google, young adults today do not need us older adults to get information. They can get it on the, just like quick as that, you know, type of anything they want to know. But young people, you do need us for interpretation. They need context for all the content they have downloaded and what they are watching on YouTube. Studies, had, studies and research have shown that we may be more connected to social media, but that we have a disconnection with each other. Now, this disconnect and the individualism in Western society has worked its way into the church at large. And Western Christianity has taken on this very, has a very individualistic ring to it. Um, even the primary way we talk about our faith, my own personal relationship with Jesus, my own private walk, my own individual faith journey, so we, need to, so we need to ask, should a faith whose whole moral code, code boils down to love God and love others be described with adjectives like personal, private, and individual? I don't know. It's just food for thought. But think about this. Christianity is the one faith whose God is community in his very being. Father, Son, and Spirit. For all eternity, he is both communal and united in his very essence. He is relational in his very being. And we are told that we are created in the image of God who is relationship at his very core. And the first thing God said that wasn't good was when he made Adam and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And because we were created in the image of a relational God, we should expect that when we are not living in community and not living in a relationship that we were designed to live, that it would have all sorts of ramifications in our lives. Take the Alameda County study. Now, this study studied 7,000 people over a nine-year period of time, and what they found is that people who had weak relational connections were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. And people who had bad health habits like smoking and eating the wrong foods, but who had strong relational ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but lived isolated lives. Isn't that amazing? In other words, and in the words of John Ortberg, eating Twinkies with good friends is far better than eating broccoli alone. <laughs> Isn't that good? Yep, amen to that. In another study by the American Journal Medical Association, they did a study on 270 people who volunteered to be exposed to the common cold virus. This study found that people who had strong relational connections were four times better at fighting off illness than those who did not have strong relational connections. And people with strong relational connections, they were significantly less susceptible to catching colds and had 
um, fewer viruses in their system and produce less mucus. So it really is true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> yes. So the population of millennials has overtaken the population of baby boomers. More millennials fill the workplace than any other generation. And there's been a ton of research, man, I was trying to filter through it all, ton of research and studies, books written, polls taken on this millennial generation. And here's a worrying trend. Studies have found that in the US, one in four millennials are unaffiliated with any faith. And I don't know what the stat is in New Zealand among millennials, but according to the 2013 census, over 40% of Kiwis say that they are unaffiliated with any Christian religion. Unaffiliated means not officially attached or connected to an organization or a group. And of the one in four millennials, according to Pew Forum, only 18% say they go to a religious service on a regular basis. In the previous generations, there was twice as many. And when, and when asked, what helps you grow in your faith? Going to church didn't even land in the top 10 of their answers. And the saying researchers kept hearing over and over was, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I mean, what do they mean by that? I think they mean that I'm connected spiritually, but I'm not connected to an institution. That they want autonomy. They want to be individual. I want to choose what I believe about God, and I want to control what I commit to or don't commit to, like the cafeteria. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Oprah. I want to be able to say that I'm connected spiritually. I want to love God, but I don't, do not want the hassle or commitment of being part of a community. It's not so much an anti-religious movement as it is an anti-social movement. And I know what you may be thinking, millennials. What are you talking about? I'm all kinds of social. I've got thousands of followers and friends on Facebook. We're more connected. I want to see what you're up to, absolutely. But there is a less deep community of I want to live life with you. Instead of asking someone, I saw this the other day, asking someone for directions, we ask Siri or Google Voice. Siri, can you tell me? We don't want to rely on humans for information. We have a computer for that. That's the world we are living in. And when we think that way, what ends up happening is that it's not good for us. We weren't created like that. Huffington Post, which is not a spiritual newspaper by a long shot, wrote an article analyzing the major trends in the lives of college students over the last 10 years. And here's what they came up with. They found that, number one, college students are less religious. Students are more stressed, depressed, and alone than ever. Drug treatment has dramatically gone up because when they're stressed and overwhelmed and they have to study, they go to a pill instead of a person. And this is the most worrying of all in this trend. Sexual violence was up on university campuses. And that's the findings of a secular magazine. We are more cyber-connected people than ever, but we have lost community. And like it or not, baby boomers and Gen Xers, this generation didn't raise themselves. And they weren't raised by wolves. We may think they haven't, but they haven't been. They were raised by us. And I raised a couple of them. And we may have given the next generation a better standard of living, but they need a better standard for living. Amen? And all of us, regardless of age, are called and responsible to the next generation. And, and, and who is the next generation? 
anyone who is coming behind you. Anyone. Psalm 78 says it like this, and I love it. It says, give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to my words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from the children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. And the next generation might know them to children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should see their hope is in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We are called to the generations. Now that word generation is used 198 times in scripture, right from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament. It's a principal word, and it's something that is repeated over and over in scripture. Isaiah 41, and I'm going to read it off there because I have a different version here. And it says this, Who has done this and carried it through? Calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. See, what that means is, from the very beginning, God planned out the generations, and he is calling them forth. So the generation you and I were born in was purposed beforehand by God. First Peter 2 9 says that we are a chosen generation. So whatever is going on in our world, in this space, in this time, these are the generations we have been called and entrusted to. Each generation is responsible for the generation coming up behind them. See, we are all spiritual mothers and we are all spiritual fathers, regardless of age. All and the generation behind us are looking at us. They are watching. If we're trusting God and believing in him when all hell is breaking loose, they're watching how we relate to one another in community. The generation behind us needs, to, needs us to encourage, coach, mentor, disciple them. They need to hear your story and stories of how God has been so good to you so they can believe that he will be good to them. The good news of the gospel is that God is not just saving individuals. God is creating a family. That as God calls people to himself, he calls us to each other. And you see it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is a sermon in itself. So bear with me as I read it. And it's in the message version, but I just dug it so much. I thought it was so cool. Oops. There we go. I can't be trusted with this. God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions of power are in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits all kinds of things are handed out by the Spirit and to all kinds of people. The variety is wonderful. Wise counsel, clear understanding, simple trust, healing the sick, miraculous acts, proclamation, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. All these gifts have a common origin. 
but are handed out one by one by the one Spirit of God. He decides who gets what and when. And you can easily enough see how this kind of thing works out by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs and organs and cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial piecemeal lives. We used to, um, to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. And that is what we proclaimed in, in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, the spirit, his spirit, where we all come to drink. And the old labels that we once used to identify ourselves, like Jew or Greek, slave or free, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You are Christ's body. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. We must never forget this. There's a lot going on in these passages, but what is the point Paul is trying to make? I think he's saying that you came to Christ because the Spirit of God came in and showed you Jesus is Lord over all. And when that Spirit came in, he separated gifts among us that we would use for the common good. We need each other's gifts, and we are dwarfed spiritually without them. True spirituality and our gifting always works itself out in the context of community because the Spirit of God is building a family. So if you say I'm spiritual but not connected to a community of faith, you're something, but I think you need another word for it. Because when the Bible says the Spirit is moving, and how do you know the Spirit is moving? Because the Spirit connects us to us. And here's what's beautiful about what Paul has unpacked here. He is saying that the Spirit of God is bringing unity out of diversity for God's glory. I hope you saw that. He is taking the Spirit of God. He is saying that the Spirit of God is moving. And what the Spirit of God does when he is alive in us is that he is connecting, what he is connecting together. And Paul picks who he's connecting together, Jews and Greeks. You could not get more different in how you see the world and how you operate within it. And he says he's making them one body together. And he's taking slaves and free people and making them brothers and sisters in Christ. God is moving. And you know you're spiritual and spirituality works itself out in the context of community. And not just any community. A unity of diversity of the generations. And if you're going to roll with Jesus, you have to know that Jesus is moving towards the unity of diversity. We need each other. A couple of weeks ago, some women came from another church um, to see how we do women's ministry at Serious Coffee here at BBC. And I sat with them at the end, um, and I met with them to answer any questions they might have. And the first thing they commented on 
wasn't the seriously good coffee they drank, or the awesome venue like the cafe, they didn't comment on that, or the great speaker we had that morning, no. What they commented on and noticed was the diversity of ages represented at the tables and how they all interacted and prayed with one another. You see, we have young moms to grandmas. And what I love so much is that we now have the next generation coming to Serious Coffee, the daughters of the Serious Coffee um, girls. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. God gets more glory when there is unity of diversity. And I'm going to call the band up now. When Jim Hearn, who was, if you didn't know him, oh my goodness, you've missed something really special. He was a preacher here, and he was uh, preached for like over 50 years, and he was absolutely amazing. Jim Hearn, when Jim Hearn was alive, I had the great honor of having him speak into my life as a mentor. He would always ask how my spiritual life was going, and he would say every time, you filled with the Holy Spirit? You walking with God daily? He was a spiritual father to me and to so many young people. I want to say all over the auditorium, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you to find a mentor? Find several mentors. Take them out for coffee. Ask them you can have an hour of their time. Take a notepad. Ask and hear how they came to know Jesus. And come prepared, like I said, ready to take notes. Glean and learn from them. And when you do, don't forget to turn around and pour into the next generation coming up behind you. To the rest of us, if Jim Hearn's life taught us anything because he was preaching till like the day he died, if we learn anything from him, is that you're never too old to pour into someone's life. Whether they know it or not, they need us, we need them, we need each other. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your spirit is creating a family. And when you bring us together in all our different ages and stages of life and viewpoints and everything, oh, God, you get the glory. You get the glory. Hallelujah. God, help us to be brave to share what we know about you to another generation. And God, we pray for them. We pray for the generations behind us. And God, I just pray that you would pour out your spirit in Jesus' name. Pour out in a fresh way. May they see that they not only need you, but they need community. They need the church. That we're not just a building. We are people. So God, we pray for them and all that they have to face in this overwhelmed generation. God, I pray that you would draw them, that they would come to know you in a mighty way, and that they would set in your name and in your spirit the next generation on fire. We praise your holy name. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' precious name.